Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. If you are a central Kentucky foodie or just want a quick snack or a homemade bowl of soup topped off with a fresh, warm cookie or maybe a breakfast scone, then look no farther than one of Wieda Michael's almost 10, and we're going to check me on that number in just a minute, 10 restaurant locations. And I'm going to ask her if that's the right number of restaurants or has it grown since I wrote this just a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, Wieda Michael, um, welcome to Think Humanities Podcast, and thanks so much for coming in on a, a, a gloomy day as we're taping this, but it's warm inside. I am so pleased that you invited me. It's so nice to be able to, I feel like we have our own little conversation pit right here. <laughs> it is a little private in here in yeah. our podcast studio, isn't it? So are there 10 now? Is that the number you use or does that even matter anymore? Well, there's 10 locations. Um, two of them are would be Woodford Reserve Distillery where we do catering and we run the Glens Creek Cafe and Fazig Tipton where we um, have all kinds of private events and then provide all the food service for their horse sales. So. Which is uh, sort of a, a new aspect of what you're doing? Yes, it's, it's well, it's unbelievably, we've been doing it three years now, uh, but part-time in the last year and a half, full-time out there and really engaging um, the public in our private event business and our, uh, it's been wonderful. We've never, we never had a kitchen big enough to really do much catering in the past, but we've always had a lot of demand from our customers. And so now we have this really nice kitchen and they have an incredible facility uh, that you can rent out there. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, let's start uh, a little earlier than that and uh, <laughs> at the beginning and just tell me about you and, and your life and, and how all of this happened. Well, I grew up here in Lexington. I, I actually grew up on State Street. Um, my dad was a professor at UK, and my parents moved here from Wyoming. Um, and uh, I went through elementary and high school, and I went to the University of Kentucky. Um, and I always loved cooking. My mother was a fantastic a fantastic cook, and she taught me a lot. And also, it was her expectation that I would help her cook. Um, and in college here at UK, I was on the debate team. And in, in on the debate team, it was a very competitive debate team, still is. They just won the national championship last year, oh, and they, they have a fantastic team mm -hmm. this year. But we would travel to Chicago, Boston, uh, the West Coast, Atlanta, all around the country to these debate tournaments, and we started eating in restaurants. And that's really, honestly, how I got fascinated with restaurant culture. Um, and I had a lot of friends in debate from all around the country who all we all loved wine. And I don't mean just from a college point of view of sure. drinking wine, but like really interested in mm -hmm. tasting wine and evaluating wine and learning about wine and food. And so we would have these giant dinner parties and we all worked together in the summertime at debate camps. Um, the primary one was at the University of Michigan in, in Ann Arbor. So I spent every summer in Ann Arbor, six or seven weeks. And the faculty would taste wine and create dinners together in our off time. And it really, you know, actually played a very formative role in how I thought about myself and whether or not I could be a chef. Um, and I moved to New York City and I had two roommates who debated for Dartmouth and they needed a third roommate. 
Um, and I signed up to go and, uh, and we had an apartment on 87th street. This mm. was in, in, uh, the 85th street. And this was in uh, 1987. Mm-hmm. And I just opened up the New York times, got a job in a restaurant. And I, I just really fell in love with the pace and the diversity of the work environment. I love physical labor. And uh, after so much cerebral activity and debate mm-hmm. and at college, and it just felt like such a relief to work with my hands. And uh, I love the feeling of accomplishment that you get in the kitchen. So New York uh, at that time was maybe a little bit more affordable. But, oh, it was a lot. Uh, oh, yeah, it was $500 a month. We paid $1,500, the, the three of us together. That included our utilities. <laughs> we had an eating kitchen, a beautiful, a living room, a foyer, full bathroom. And they had a, they were a couple. They had a huge master bedroom and I had a a nice yeah a, a nice single bedroom yeah. and it was it was wonderful for two years and then from there I went to the Culinary Institute of, of America and on the first day of school I met Chris Michael uh-huh. um, and we became friends and then later we moved in together and then we were married and where where was he at that time where was he from he's from and his family is like since they immigrated to the United States, whenever that was, they have lived in New York. So he's one of oh. those nine generation oh, New York yeah. families. He, uh, he's from Long Island. He grew up on Long Island in uh, Manhasset, Long Island, and had his his dad had bought a little house in East Hampton in 1946 for five thousand dollars. So he spent summers in East Hampton. He started working at this deli called Plain and Fancy Deli and fell in love with food service. He had gone to Colgate. Um, gotten his bachelor's in philosophy and art history. Oh, goodness. And decided, was trying to decide between chef school or film school. And I, I feel fairly certain he probably wishes <laughs> he had gone to film school. But... Uh, Did you meet at... Uh, the Culinary Institute of America. Oh, you met there, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were in the same class. So what was the uh, sort of the deciding uh, moment or point that you, when you were waiting and then you decided that I'm, I'm going to get serious about this and go to cu- culinary school? Well, at that time, I had looked at culinary schools. Like, it was in my mind when I was still living here at the end of my college career. Um, but you had to have had a wor- year's work experience. In those days, this isn't true any longer, but to go to the Culinary Institute of America, you had to have 12 months of work experience. So that's what I thought I would do in New York. Um, and it just I ended up really loving it, and I had a variety of jobs, and I ended up staying two years. Um and it was that moment, I think it was probably after the first three months of working in a restaurant in New York City, said, well, I really want to try to do this. I, I felt, in, you know, when you find your passion, you just, it doesn't feel like you're working and mm-hmm. you're, at least for me, I've become mm-hmm. obsessed by all the mm-hmm. creativity of it and exploring the subject. And I had a job working, the chef at the restaurant that I was working in, which was a macrobiotic restaurant. Mm-hmm. There were no meat products of any kind. And I really learned well, a lot. That was early on. That was uh, my first, yeah. yeah. And so I... He also ran all the concessions for Shakespeare in the Park. And so I went from that restaurant to working for him that summer. And I got to meet Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. And mm. I got to see Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. I mean, it was mm. just an incredible, wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. And the cooking was so much fun. Tell me about, um, go back to the, the first few days that you were working in, in the restaurant. And and what your assignment was? Were you just uh, were you in the kitchen? Yes, I was in the kitchen. Um, I don't know why they hired me. I mean, I <laughs> well, I'd had some restaurant. My one restaurant I had worked on here, 
my very first professional experience was with John Ferguson. I don't know if you remember John Ferguson. No. He was a caterer and a restaurateur here in Lexington, and the name of his restaurant was Fleur de Lis. It was down here on uh, where where now the new hotels were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he hired me to help cater a wedding, and I, my job was to shuck oysters, but I had never shucked an oyster before. <laughs> And um, and you have all your fingers still. And there was no oyster yeah. knife. He gave me a screwdriver to do really? it. Really? And so I didn't <laughs> succeed. And I was so dis, yeah. you know, discouraged. And then I worked for Angel Levis for a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Um, but after, n- none of those were very successful. Ended up going to um, New York. And in that first job in New York City, the name of the restaurant was The Health Pub. And I was the prep person. And I remember we were reviewed. So I did a little bit of everything. We, we, I made polenta, I remember. I mm. learned how to make polenta. I learned how to um, cook chickpeas in a pressure cooker. So a lot of what they did was pressure cooking. Mm. And uh, so I got very good on the pressure cooker. And then I remember I was on the salad station. Mm. And uh, um, my coworker was from Chile. And so I loved that. I fell in love with him. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he uh, invited us all to his, his house and made us this big Chilean dinner. It was really just mm-hmm. amazing. I met people that I never thought I would. And we were in the New York Times for 25 under 25 for Eric Asimov's pick for that column. Oh, wow. And I walked to work that day. And the line was from the restaurant door. This restaurant was on 22nd and 2nd Avenue, all the way a block and a half long. And I walked into work in the kitchen and the poor chef was crying because oh. the there were so many tickets yeah. coming off, oh, and gosh. it was so stressful. Yeah, but you, he, the chef, and yeah. everyone else survived that. We survived it. We had to close the doors at some point to the restaurant because the demand was too crazy. And so oh, we, we did the best we could with everybody that was in, and mm-hmm. I remember them locking the door, not letting anybody else yeah. in. How but the does, restaurant's still there. How does uh, a chef, how do you estimate how many people you're going to serve and, and what you know that, that that you can buy that will fulfill a, a, a dinner menu? Um, now we use history. You know, we have, we're lucky to have been in business a while, so we can use history. We can look back and say, okay, this is what we did last time. Mm. Um, when you first open, that's why new restaurants struggle. Mm. They have no really way of knowing, so you just take your best guess. Mm-hmm. You say, okay, now, when I, when I, the last two restaurants we opened weren't quite this way, but initially when we opened Holly Hill Inn, we didn't tell anybody we were opening. We took it very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. And we've done that at every restaurant, except now word gets out and everybody comes mm-hmm. and then they get mad because you're out of this or their service is wrong. But, you know, there's no way to successfully mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. with everything perfect. Mm-hmm. There's no way to do it. So... At first, you just say, I think we're going to do 100 covers. If you're, I think this this menu item here, this chicken breast, I think mm-hmm. it's going to sell, we're going to sell 35 out of 100. And I base it on percentages. Mm. And now I think over time, I'm just a lot more intuitive. I know what sells, I know what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm my, I like to think I'm right most of the time. I don't <laughs> know if the chefs that work yeah. for us think I'm right, but. Yeah. So um, back now to the Culinary Institute, the. Um, so you, you were there two years, did you say? Yes. And and what knowledge did you gain coming out of there that you then thought, I'm going to stay in New York or maybe it's time to go back to Kentucky? I was planning on staying in New York. Mm-hmm. 
I loved New York. I loved the Hudson River Valley. I would have stayed in the Hudson River Valley at that time. Chris and I both really loved it, but they were in a major depression. That was in 1989 when we graduated. Mm-hmm. 1991, I'm sorry. We started school in 1989, graduated in 1991. And so we felt like we probably didn't have enough professional opportunity there. We went back to East Hampton and to work for a year because you can make a lot of money working in restaurants in East Hampton, New York. And um, while we were there, Chris proposed to me. Mm. And then my mom and my stepdad at the time, my mom, my mom was Pam Sexton, my stepfather, Bob Sexton, who I loved, dearly loved. Mm-hmm. He called me, Bob called me one night, and he rarely did this, and he just said, please come home to get married. Oh. <laughs> I think because my mom was so worried that I wasn't going to. Yeah. She made his... Yeah. She made his life a living hell, he said. <laughs> You've got to come home. Yeah. So... Chris and I took a a cross-country trip and traveled at the end of 1992, and we'd saved up this money from East Hampton, and we bought ourselves a little pickup truck, and we we went to visit my grandmother in Wyoming and my dad and my stepmother in Oklahoma City, Mm -hmm. and we saw friends in California. We drove all around. And when we got back to Lexington, I was going to stay. He was going to move back to New York, and then I would join him. Mm -hmm. So I was going to stay here with Mom and Bobby and plan the wedding. Well, we missed each other too much, so he moved down, and I got a job at Dudley's Restaurant, and I really loved being home. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't miss New York at all. Hmm. I I felt all of a sudden, when I got back here, this was in 1993, that I could make things happen here, that I realized then the value of having um, a support system around you and connections in a community, and I was very lucky that my parents had paid it forward for me. All my parents really paid it forward mm-hmm. for me with a wide circle of friends. And and so I thought, well, this is the place. We could buy property here. We could, uh, we know who we're going to be cooking for. And I had that sense. I had read something. I think it was from Alice Waters. Who's, it, she said, I wanted to cook for a community. Mm. And I felt like in New York, I was more anonymous, which I liked. When Mm -hmm. I was first moved up there, I was tired of (laughs) the support circle around me. And I wanted to be anonymous when I moved to New York City. But we were, I was ready to come home. And and so what what was the initial step that uh, brought you from that that first uh, restaurant to to the 10 now that you operate? Well, the very first, well, we we wrote a bunch of business plans. And we had a group of people that would read them for us. Um, The bankers and people that my mom and Bob yeah. knew and um, all of them got sort of shot down, which was great. They should have, you know, they weren't very, they weren't super great. And we opened a great big restaurant for um, the Coons family out on Tate's Creek Road called e- Emmett's. And in between, I worked for Debbie Long and, and, and Harriet Dupree and got a lot of experience in that way. And Emmett's gave us the experience of being executive chef and general manager of a big operation so we could kind of see how it all worked together. At that time, we got the opportunity. A, a person came in. We met Happenstance, Bob Rouse, and his uh, he and his dad and their family owned the Holly Hill Inn. Mm-hmm. And they're our close friends now. And he said, well, we'll never sell it. But at Six months later, he said they were ready to sell it. And so we went out there and we called our lawyer, Ed Henry, who's still mm-hmm. our, our lawyer. And Ed went out and looked at it. And he said, well, I think this could work. We made Ed look at it before we told our parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, 
yeah, we yeah. and that made the decision. Did, was there any hesitation at all uh, to go to Midway instead of staying here in in Lexington or an urban area? Or we had looked and looked in Lexington, um, and uh, but we wanted to create something that was based. And we started with our, the 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 unfortunate thing that we did. Well, we're we're not the best business people, I should say. I mean, we we're we're okay. We're smart and we navigate. But at this point in our lives, at that point, we were two chefs who never owned a business or operated a business before. And in our minds, we were opening up the Inn at Little Washington or the Herb Farm or one of these sort of rural. Um, we liked that sensibility. The rural areas that surround urban areas, I still really, I mean, I live next to Holly Hill Inn. I've always felt Kentucky has this huge wealth of resources. If we can stop at the industrial development that, or if we can contain industrial development to certain zones so that we can allow the natural beauty of our rural economy to bloom, it could be a very a huge wealth of entrepreneurialism, not just in food service and in tourism, but in all kinds of ways. And I so that's why I just fell in love with Midway. Do you think that Kentucky is still uh, trying to reach what you just painted a picture of, or trying to to strive to do better in those uh, uh, in, in those areas? We're not, we're not taking advantage of who we are really as Kentuckians. I feel like we've always sort of thought that our biggest resource might be this land. And instead, I feel like, I mean, I think economic development is good. Uh, I should say that. But I think we should focus our economic development efforts instead of building big, this is happening across the interstate from Midway today, and um, are these huge warehouses that are going up. So we're going into the warehouse business where we ship. You know, eventually that will probably not be sustainable for us. Mm-hmm. And who wants all those big empty buildings sitting there? Mm-hmm. So I wish there was more. I know there's a lot of short-term demand and push and urgency around developing certain property. But it seems to me that with the the kind of land that we have that surrounds Lexington and in central Kentucky, we ought to be focusing more on smart development and technological development and less on this sort of like warehousing development. But yeah. I'm not on the economic development board, and I'm not the guy tra- that's charged yeah. with trying to sell that property. Yeah. So, And I'm going to benefit from the payroll mm-hmm. taxes and everything in a very real economic mm-hmm. way. Um, so I understand the upside, but I do think there will be a downside to that kind of development. And it's sort of a shame because I don't know that we know what the full potential of that is. When did you and Chris know that you were successful or that you were recognized or that you were beginning to receive awards? When, when, how long did it take? I still don't quite feel that way. Um, you know, I, I definitely feel like I'm still building and developing a business and learning how to run a business. I feel that way every single day. Um, but in terms of community recognition, um, we were very early on very lucky at Holly Hill Inn to be, have a full page article about uh, the Holly Hill Inn and Wine Spectator magazine. And then sort of a lot of, then we were in Delta Mag. Mm. We got a lot of press very early on mm. and that made us feel, although I don't know that it was so much in the community, but it, it helped us feel like, oh, we're on the right track. You know, we're doing the right thing. Um, and the first James Beard nomination, which I can't remember what year that was, that blew me away. And 
Now, for those uh, listening who don't know uh, James Beard, don't know what an honor it is, who he was, how he, uh, how that, and, and that award is still being given, and you've won numerous times. Is that, oh, and is I've that, never won. So the James but you've been nominated. Yes. Yeah, so James, times. the James Beard Foundation yeah. is really a foundation that was. Um, it's based in New York City in the West Village in James Beard's original home. James mm. Beard was, the, he wrote many, many books. He's the first person in our culinary history in America who really celebrated American food. At that time when he was in the 60s and early 70s and even early 80s, um, you know, it was about Julia Child, who I also love, share her birthday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But oh. it was about French food, you know, mm-hmm. everything. We didn't have pride in an American cuisine, we were looking to the French and to the Italian and continental cuisine. All restaurants were continental. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't this modern American uh, sure. culinary movement that we have today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And James Beard really started that. Mm-hmm. And his foundation celebrates chefs from all over the country. They come to his home to cook. And I've been there a few times cooking meals. And also they give scholarships, but they also have the kind of they they have hosted or they they produce the Oscars of the food world, kind of. Mm -hmm. So they have all different kinds of awards that they give out. Some of them are in media and in writing, and some of them are in restauranturing or chefing. Um, Some of them are for wine programs and spirit programs, and they have a restaurant of the year, a chef of the year, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to... uh, I've been nominated for chef, Chef of the Year in our region, which is the Southeast region. Think of the SEC, kind of. Um, but, and I've been nominated five times, but it's sort of hard to make it into the finals when you're just from mid, when you're from this little town, Midway, Kentucky, you know, but I was so proud. I'm, I am so proud of that. Yeah. And then two years ago I was nominated for a national award restaurant tour of the year, which I've completely shocked me and made me feel very, I'm very proud of those nominations. Um, when did you and Chris decide that uh, Holly Hill was doing well? Now let's uh, and, and what was next was and I'm just gonna guess. Let me just let me let me yeah. think here. Was Wallace Station? Yes, yeah. Wallace Station. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I said we we aren't absolutely we've grown w- without the capital. So we bootstrap all these restaurants, and sometimes it works out real well, but uh, sometimes it doesn't, and that means that we. I remember several bankers telling me, well, you need to accumulate some profits first. I'm like, oh, please. Well, then the opportunity might be gone if I accumulate, if I wait. Mm -hmm. So we went ahead and did Wallace Station, and that was a great decision. Was it a restaurant before? I don't remember. It was an old country store, and it always was called Wallace Station. It was closed down for renovation, and the guy that was renovating it ran out of money. And he sold it to another person who had it up for rent. We Mm -hmm. went in just to look at it and walked out. (laughs) <laughs> renting yeah. our second restaurant. Yeah, um, It was based on, and we modeled it after the Plain and Fancy Deli, and we never thought anybody would stay there to eat. Our goal was for people <laughs> to just come in and buy a sandwich and leave. But uh, And we thought, well, we'll bake all the desserts for Holly Hill Inn here because the Holly Hill Inn kitchen is real small. So we can use this as our bakery, and yeah. we'll sell a few sandwiches to to break even. Well, you know what happened. Yeah. It's It's been yeah. a wonderful success. It's a It's a... It's our dive. It's been on diners, drive-ins, and dives, yeah. and it really is a dive. Yeah. And uh, I and, get... and it seems like to me it's – I don't know if I've ever been there when it hasn't been uh, – and there have been several – lots of people in there, and then yeah. uh, most days you're 
on Sundays uh, yeah. and maybe Friday and Saturdays, yeah. uh, you're in line, you know, to yeah. get in. Uh, like, outside, like, like your place in New York. <laughs> yes. And I, when I feel so, I get, I get in there to try to help our team and yeah. I get an anxiety attack like you wouldn't believe because I can't handle, <laughs> Wendy Corner's the same way. I get so anxious yeah. with all those people waiting. Yeah. So I just try to keep telling our team, just smile as best you can, be as friendly as you yeah. possibly can because you can't lock the door. You can't lock people in it's not safe <laughs> yeah so we just roll with it and thankfully we have a big beautiful yard outside we put in frisbee frisbee golf to sort of help people yeah. have something to do um but yeah what, what I, I, you've probably been asked this um many times but what really makes a successful eatery what have you discovered in your uh restaurants and why you are so successful I'm not as successful as chain restaurants are, so I have a different model. So for me, it's different than, than um, like I have just met a, first, a friend, a new friend last week, and invest, they invest in Lone Star Steakhouses. Well, Lone Star Steakhouse does in one week what it takes all of our restaurants to do in one week period in terms of sales. So I, from that standpoint, but for me, what's what's successful for me is I'm looking for authenticity and beauty and an expression of place. That is what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for sustainable financials. Mm -hmm. And so I need to make money and my husband, we need to make money because we have a kid going to college. All my staff need to make money and I want them to have a livelihood that's good for them. So I, I'm trying to create jobs where people can make a life, you can have a family, you can, I'm not trying to create, um, you know, we pay health insurance, we have paid time off, we don't have huge benefits, we're not, um, but on the other hand, we pay our bills and we're, everybody makes a pretty good wage and we make pretty much what everybody else makes and but that's to me is, but what makes people really want to come to a restaurant like a Windy Corner or Wallace Station or Holly Hill? I feel like we have iconic locations in the bluegrass mm. and we've carved out places that you might not be able to see if you only stay in town. Mm -hmm. If you want to sit and look out a window and see mm -hmm. horses grazing, you're going to have to go to Windy Corner and eat mm -hmm. a po' boy out there or be in the backyard on a scenic byway. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to go to Wallace Station if you want to eat in a 150-year-old home. Mm -hmm with a hundred year old front porch, you're mm -hmm. going to have to come to Holly Hill. Those to me play, those places are vulnerable and they're expressive. And that's why I think people like them. When, um, have you ever sold a restaurant? No, I've closed one, um, in Versailles and that was painful. And I'm proud of us that we didn't go bankrupt. We paid all our bills, shut the restaurant and helped our staff find other jobs. And that was Cleveland's in Versailles. I don't remember that one. I, I didn't go it to that It was in between, um, we had opened Wallace Station. It, it was in that period, but yeah. we had not okay. opened Early. Windy Corner yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so um, one of the other things that you've sort of built a reputation on and you're very proud of, and, and it's part of that Kentuckiness that you were talking about before yeah. is is food that is locally sourced and yes and it seems like in, in almost um i mean we're, we we all want to eat local uh yeah. but that's been a struggle i mean there, there's been a debate about kentucky proud mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it was even this summer if i'm correct about this that um kentucky proud in that movement which i think started under commissioner comer when he was 
Was before, it before even before him? before, before c- Comer, uh huh. Yeah, um, oh, but but anyway, that whole thing that was going on uh, across the country, uh, and yet I heard I think just this summer at uh, at the Lexington Farmers Market that up until just recently you could bring in um, honey, for example. And, you know, Tammy Horn might have told me this, uh-huh. our, our, uh, our beekeeper of, of, of state fame, uh-huh. that you could bring in honey from uh, out of state and put it in a, a, a jar that said Kentucky Proud on it and sell it as a Kentucky Proud product. And that's why on the honey... They have a different label on there now. Uh, yeah. Am I correct about that? So Do Ken- I understand it right? Well, they're, Kentucky Proud, as a brand and as a program, um, it started as it wasn't defined, wasn't confined to agriculture. The statute says is includes any kind of business that's food related. So ALA is Kentucky Proud, mm-hmm. um, but that's not an agricultural product. Mm-hmm. So there are many salsas and mustards mm-hmm. and things that are, they're products that are not uh, sourced from Kentucky agricultural mm-hmm. products, mm-hmm. but are considered Kentucky Proud because okay. they're made in Kentucky. And honey may have fallen into that category. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But Kentucky Proud, I call it Kentucky Dam Proud. When you're, <laughs> when you're talking yeah. about, so it's inclusive. So in other words, um, uh, well, I don't know how to frame it in my mind right now, but everything that crosses a farm gate, whether it's eggs or a tomato or lettuce or a hamburger patty that uh, was a steer that crossed right. that farm gate, right. that is, as long as they're signed up for the Kentucky Proud program with the okay. Kentucky Department of Agriculture, yeah. they are Kentucky Proud. But um, Kentucky Proud includes more than just agricultural products. So the current Department of Agriculture, they have a new program called Buy Local. So they've really tried to address Mm. some of those issues, especially with restaurants. So they have a Buy Local program, and it's it's delineated out exactly what qualifies at what what point system Uh for that Buy Local program. Mm. Um, But it is is confusing to people, but there's like now there's – they have a they have a variety of new programs that I think is great, and I want to say I'm a huge supporter of Kentucky Proud. I do think there are these little areas around the edge of the brand that grayed yeah. out, like what yeah. you're talking right. about. Yeah. those were statutorily included mm. by the okay. by the by the right. legislature, uh, legislature. Yeah. and they probably got lobbied. Yeah. Is all I can say. Of it course. should be a single yeah. agricultural brand, yeah. but I think the current Department of Agriculture has really done a lot to mm-hmm. sort of get at some of those. Appalachian Proud would be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing about it is, is like no other state can brag about a brand that does alert. When you see Kentucky Proud on a package of ground beef, that beef was raised mm-hmm. in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So, do you know of other states that have programs that no, are similar? No, we're way ahead. Really? Really? If you go to California. That we had this big meat symposium here in Kentucky a couple of years ago, and there were chefs from all over the country. That no chef in California has the ability to identify mm. anything that was produced in that state as by, as easily as we can here yeah. with Kentucky Proud. So you have always tried to use as many uh, locally uh, sourced products in, right. in all your restaurants. I mean, you probably were a pathfinder in that way when you started Holly Hill. Yeah, Holly Hill. So Holly Hill, in our business plan, sourcing local food was in the business plan. Because I, now, Debbie Long at Dudley's has sourced local food. I worked for her. I came to work for her in 1993, and she was doing it then. I did not invent that wheel. And 
She, at that time, the old Dudley's was just down the street from the Maxwell Street Farmer's Market. We walked down there all the time. She had friends um, like Sue, you know, Bubba Sue's Shrimp and um, Sue Harkins, who were producing for her, and she was buying everything they were producing. She really, really, really put put the bug in me. Not just what she was doing, but also I felt like at that point, remember, my training was sort of this French continental yeah, and American right. mod- and Alice waters. You throw all those things mm-hmm. together yeah. and it means one thing. You've got to look at local food. Yeah. Cause that's really what great cuisines are. Great cuisines are not made in factories. Great cuisines are grown in fields and cooked in kitchens. That's what a great cuisine is. Uh-huh. And that's why I constantly tell people is like the taste of Kentucky cannot be found in a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. I'm sorry to say that, but that's because that chicken it's a Kentucky recipe, but it's a, it's not it's produced in a way mm-hmm. that's not going to develop our cuisine, yeah. our true cuisine. I'm fine with it existing, and I like Kentucky Fried Chicken, but that's not the cuisine of Kentucky. Are you ever ever troubled um, uh, by uh, the fast food movement? Uh, I, there have been numerous books written about it. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, are you concerned that especially young children are growing up on on garbage uh, that some fast food uh, franchises produce? Yeah, I think that we have to look at how we produce food in our country and figure out ways to produce quality, nutritious food for huge numbers of people, like school lunch programs. And they don't; it can't all be done on grow it's it's not doesn't make a lot of sense to say oh just use local food we have to produce this great we need to produce great tasting delicious and nutritious food for our children the thing that worries me yes the fast food industry concerns me i'm i'm a fast food customer i like my mcdonald's hamburger just fine everything in moderation well what is concerns me as a chef is that young chefs are coming up and everything has to be either a taco or burger they have no imagination about what can be on the food they're not being like i want them to say i want to say go back in history and look at what our history is not just here but what was our history in france what's our history in china what's our history around Mm -hmm. the world as humans in our cuisine and how does that translate to what we're growing here it all starts for me on the farm um but fast food, we're never going to get rid of it. We can't eliminate it. And I feel like it's really doing a pretty good job in some ways of changing itself. You know, there are calorie counts on every menu right now. There are lots of new salads yeah. going in. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're trying to adapt to a healthier lifestyle. But maybe we have to also adapt our palates as parents, as people. You know, it's hard. It's, oh, it's tangled up in food access and food justice and... Are you pleased with, uh, if, if people know uh, your uh, restaurants, or maybe they know the, the name of the restaurant, but they don't, they don't know that you're uh, connected to it until they get there. Yeah. Are you pleased with what you've done with Zim's, which is in the old uh, courthouse uh, at, in downtown yeah. Lexington, and Honeywood, for that matter, yeah. which is out uh, in the new Summit uh, shopping, living um, area? Yeah. Uh, th- those are... Those sort of, and you did those pretty close together, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I feel, I've this, I, yes, very close together. I mean, I don't recommend that. (laughs) It might work for bigger businesses, but it's it's hard. Yeah. I am so proud of that. I mean, um, I, Honeywood is, is meant to be an expression of our Kentucky cuisine in a modern way in the middle of Nicholasville Road. (laughs) And, and can that work? Or is Nicholasville Road only going to support fast food? 
I mean, that's the question. And I think it's working. I I feel so proud of it. We have a new chef, Lawrence Weeks, who's fantastic, um, who's really expressing his own culture there, too. Um, And then Zim's is, you know, named after my great-grandfather, Aaron Rufus Zimmerman. So his name was Aaron Rufus Zimmerman. And um, I, I wanted something happy in that courthouse um at the the building's imposing it's filled with offices it's all that marble everywhere and the limestone and the gargoyles and the justice that was metered out and i wanted something light and bright where families could come and bring their kids yeah. and show them the farmer's market where we were really serving stuff from the farmer's market and mm-hmm. and then the thirsty foxes our our bar little mm-hmm. bourbon bar on the other side so yeah i'm really proud of it well i had uh, relatives come in from uh, from several states uh, back in the fall uh we uh, gather in Barron County, Glasgow, my hometown, uh-huh. but the, we started and we have uh, for the last uh, several years started here and gone either uh, east or west or try to see historical. Uh, we always uh, are, are looking at uh, buildings, uh, uh, historical buildings or uh, trying to learn a little bit about history. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're all of their roots or their relatives' roots are in Kentucky. And this year we started at Zim's, and they were just delighted. I mean, oh. they, they, we always try to choose something local. One, one time, and I, I've forgotten the name of the restaurant. We went to, we were on our way to maybe Maker's Mark, and we stopped in Springfield at a little. Uh, uh, somebody had recommended a little uh, homegrown, uh, locally owned uh, little restaurant there, and uh-huh. they loved that. That was yeah. for lunch, but um, you. You really know how to make, I mean, it goes back to, I mean, emanates, I think, from the top, but you really school your uh, your wait staff in a way oh. that they're so, nine times out of 10, I'm sure yeah. there's, but, but they're they're courteous and they're smiling and yeah. they're helpful. And that that's such a huge part of it. Well, I mean, it is. It's, I say to people all the time, the restaurant business is really about people and you, your hospitality I stole this from Danny Meyer, but your hospitality begins with your staff, not with your guest. Mm-hmm. And um, I really firmly believe that. And of course, we constantly are struggling for improvement and training, but also I really take it seriously when people, I get offended and I take it seriously when people say they don't want any more service sector jobs, no more restaurant jobs. I am trying with our company to create a homegrown restaurant environment to employ food entrepreneurs for our community and ambassadors for the people who visit here. And I want them to have a good life and I want them to make a lot of money and, mm. and, and be able to support themselves. Um, that's really a goal of mine. But if you look at the Zim's uh, menu mm-hmm. at the top, you'll see a little picture of me as a baby on my first birthday oh. with my great-grandpa there. Oh, that's nice. But I will say, too, for Zim's, it was quite noisy in those rooms, so now we have all noise-proofing on the ceiling. Oh, okay. So, you have to do that. So, yeah. Somebody must have said something about that to you. Or Oh, yeah. Gay Redding did. Hi, Gay. <laughs> I know he's listening to this podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, we <laughs> have finally... Just uh, look uh, not way into the future. We don't want to do that. Uh, but but just uh, what what's next for you and Chris and the daughter? And Willa. Um, well, we I love operating the businesses that we have. And I feel like I've been so growth-oriented over the last few years that I just want to really focus on improving everything that we're doing and elevating what we're doing. 
Um, but we have a cookbook coming out oh. um, that we're working on getting that published when and is completed. That coming out? It'll be in the spring of 2021 oh, if wonderful. all things go well, which I hope yeah. they will. Yeah. And we have a new we have an online store that we're going to be putting out so that you can get our products online. Yeah. And we developed a cookie tin that we sold this past Christmas, and we'll be launching that year round this year. So we're working on product development, yeah. cookbooks, new menus, and yeah yeah all that stuff. well congratulations on all of your success and, and you. uh, being uh, here and entertaining and um serving all of us comfort food <laughs> and walking out with a smile on our face and and uh, telling the next person we run into that uh, you've got to go to wallace station for a cookie or you need to go out and get a po' boy or i like the fried oysters uh, yeah. at windy corner it's just it's, it's a wonderful atmosphere in each of your thank locations you. appreciate thank that. you for being here thank you Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.